0: Well, today we launch into a new series on the book of Galatians. I hope you've been thinking of Galatians at least a little bit. It doesn't take long. You can read the whole book of Galatians through in about 18 minutes. It's not long. It is deep. Uh, the significant thing about the book of Galatians is it's it's written in a style, A, that doesn't really lend itself to nice Sunday morning preaching. I recognize that the reason we're doing it is because when you understand Galatians, it's a bit like Romans. Galatians doesn't read like Philippians reads. Galatians kind of says, use your head here, think this through. But when you understand Galatians, you understand the Bible. Galatians gives you an overview of, of every Abraham, Moses, the law, the sacrificial system. The coming of Jesus. You you get a big framework in which to think deeply about your Bible. That's the value of Galatians. So I think we're capable of doing it. We're a fairly bright church. We're used to series-type preaching. Law, liberty, and life in Jesus. Knowing how it all works. This is part one. This morning, a little bit different. I want to talk about just getting the big picture of Galatians. Background, three things. Background, context, and overview. Okay? Okay? So, buckle up. Let's study this together. So, there won't be particularly a text that I'm working through. I want to do some some uh, flyover of the whole book. And next week, we'll start chapter 1, verse 1, and work through the verses. It's a great study. It, uh, I said, along with Romans, it, it forms an understanding of everything that's important about your walk with Jesus. So, today, we're going to take a little time to do background, context, overview. And before we do, let's pray. right before the teaching time we sang God's love the world and in that course we sang these words I will wait upon the Lord I will wait upon his word and the insight there is we we wait on the Lord not just when we pray we wait on the Lord when we come to his word. We, we're, we're waiting on the Lord when we wait on the word. And waiting on the word, that first word, waiting, means there's, a, there's a, a presence of Jesus. There's a grace that comes through the word. But it isn't quick and it isn't easy. You wait on it. You, you think about it. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll bring that to all of our understandings today, wherever we're waiting on the word, that what we're doing is welcoming the Lord to renew our minds and to deepen our walk with you. So come, Holy Spirit, and do that, I pray in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. The background, point number one, the background of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul had evangelized the southern districts of Galatia, not far from modern-day Turkey. And he has established congregations there on his very first missionary journey. If you were reading the book of Acts, this this would have been described in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14. That's where you would have the record of Paul's establishing of these congregations in Galatia. So he did that. Then he returned to Jerusalem. After he established these congregations, multiple congregations in Galatia, he returned to Jerusalem and he hears some disturbing news about the churches he's just planted. The news he hears is that false teachers have crept into these brand-new congregations with a lot of brand-new Gentile Christians. False teachers had come and started to, to teach different things than they had heard from Paul. How much does that matter? I mean, ideas are ideas. People can think things through. Well, Paul doesn't have very much patience with it. And, and you, you get right there, this idea that false teaching matters. It mattered a lot to Paul. That it wasn't just throw a bunch of ideas and as long as it's religious sounding, well, we just embrace it and let's just see what happens in our hearts. That would be very common thinking today, but it wasn't common then. The central element in this false teaching was that these new, brand new, non-Jewish, Gentile Christians who had come out of other religions, turned from idols, he says in, in 1 Thessalonians. These people turned from idols to serve the living God. False teachers had come to these brand new Gentile Christians and said to them, great that you've discovered Jesus. But we've had the law of God for centuries, And if you really want to please God, you believe in Jesus, that's great. But what you need to do now is you need to recognize the value of everything God had revealed in the old covenant. And it was confusing to these new Christians. What else did they need to do? Well, they were being told that they needed to come back under the umbrella of Old Covenant Judaism. We'll study that false teaching in just a minute. But that was the essence of it. So before Paul left on his second missionary journey, and just before that famous, that famous council mentioned in Acts chapter 15, Paul sat down and he wrote what we call the letter to the Galatians. An impassioned, plea to all these churches that he had just planted, he wrote this around 47 AD, which makes Galatians one of the earliest New Testament documents. Okay, that's, that's the background. The context, point number two. Pastor Dom, why would you be talking about context on a Sunday morning here in Cedarview? Context makes all the difference in the world when you're interpreting the scriptures. We need to know exactly the problem Paul was addressing if we're going to make a proper application of this letter to our church today. The same instructions can mean totally different things depending on the context. Let let me give you an illustration. Imagine you're sitting in a nice family room at your summer cottage. You're almost asleep on the couch. When you hear me, Pastor Don, I'm sitting out on your dock. And as you're just drifting off to sleep, you hear Pastor Don going, go jump in the lake. And you sit up, you recognize the voice. you know, I've been involved in some theological debate with some other pastor and you naturally assume that I've just lost my patience. I don't want to engage in discussion anymore. And I've just told my Christian brother, go jump in the lake. And you decide, you know, need to pray for pastor Don a little more. He's not very patient with people that disagree with him. But in fact, something very different just happened. There was a teenage boy. He's outside painting your cottage and accidentally he's disrupted a hornet's nest and these flying torturers are chasing him all over the yard and out onto the dock, he gets close to me and sensing the nearness of disaster. I yell at him and I say, oh, quick jump, go jump in the lake. Same words, (laughs) exactly the same passion in my voice but two totally different situations. What makes the difference? Context, right? You need to know the context if the words are going to make sense. Book of Galatians has been used, misused, to address all sorts of issues from worldliness and legalism in the church for years. People have used this letter to solve arguments on everything from fashion to smoking to going to movies. And none of this even comes close to what Paul is dealing with in this letter. Paul was addressing a very different situation. He was writing this letter to set the church on guard against these religious teachers who were trying to tell these Christians that they needed their rules and their regulations along with their commitment to Jesus if they were going to get to heaven. By that I don't just mean that these teachers were insisting that anybody that these Christians could keep the law perfectly. I mean, these Jews themselves, these false teachers, they knew that they couldn't keep the law perfectly. I mean, the whole sacrificial system, for that matter, the existence of the temple as well, it was proof of their own need for cleansing. They knew they couldn't keep their own law perfectly. Why were they insisting that these Gentile Christians live life under that same law? Why? What gave them the right to do this? Did they think that people could keep the law perfectly and earn God's approval? And the answer is no. That wasn't the issue Paul was attacking. It was even bigger. The the central point of conflict with these Jewish teachers was, was the change that comes with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These false teachers... We were proclaiming that the Jews were God's people in the sense that their Jewishness set the terms for acceptance with God. In fact, one had to keep the covenant signs of the Jewish Old Testament era if he or she was going to be one of God's people. And they maintained that the coming of Jesus didn't change that one bit. That's why when you read the book of Galatians, the the particular laws of the old covenant that are dealt with, it's not the Ten Commandments. The particular signs of the old covenant that are dealt with are, are two laws pertaining to Jewish separateness from the rest of the nations. So the two things talked about in this letter by the Jewish teachers and refuted by Paul are laws regarding circumcision and dietary regulations. By dietary regulations, not just foods that are kosher. I don't mean that. But regulations for sitting at table with Gentiles. If you recall... That's the issue Paul had to get after Peter with. Do you remember that? Peter was there with Paul, celebrating the goodness of Jesus, sitting down with all these Gentile believers, breaking bread, fellowshipping, enjoying oneness in Christ with all of them. And then all of a sudden, these Jewish officials came from Jerusalem. And when they reached where peter and paul were peter wouldn't sit with the gentiles anymore remember that and paul in those blunt words says and i confronted him to his face what paul means is right in front of everybody right in front of everybody what do you do with false teaching do you just hope it goes away right in front of everybody paul says to peter you know before these heavyweights from Jerusalem came, you were perfectly free to eat with the Gentiles. And now because you want to look good in their eyes, you won't sit and break bread with these Gentile believers. The text actually says Peter and even Barnabas. We're going to look at this in detail as we work our way through the letter. They both fell for this. We, we, want, to, we, we want to please people. Peter, Barnabas, both Jewish in background. And they're committed to Jesus until these Jewish leaders come and say, no, 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 you can't eat with Gentiles. Why does Paul care who Peter eats with? I mean, what's this all about? And, and why does Paul take all the time? You see, we get into it in the letter. He takes all the time to write about this incident to these Galatian Christians. Because these two laws, circumcision and purity at keeping table, that's what they called it. They highlight the real concern of all these false teachers. They were telling these new Jewish new Gentile Christians that in order for them to really be God's people, they had to convert to old covenant Judaism. So in other words, they would have to obey, especially these two laws that mark Jews off from Gentiles. Christ's death on the cross wasn't enough by itself to make Gentiles God's people. That's the issue. How do we become children of God? Well, under the old covenant, you can you 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 either proselytize, you enter into the old covenant through circumcision and all the regulations. That's how you become one of God's people. And these teachers were saying that's still the way you become one of God's people. And Paul says you become God's people. Doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter your nationality, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter. When you are in Christ, you are god's people you are abraham's descendants there's still christians that have a hard time believing that all the promises of abraham the blessings do you understand that you're in that that's you when chris puts up a text and it's from the psalms and you're reading about zion and jerusalem do you just see promises to israel or do you see oh that's us now in christ This is a huge issue. It's a huge issue. How do we become God's people? Is it by being descendants of Abraham? The answer, by the way, uh, no, not anymore. It is by becoming a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. be like telling a new convert at a Billy Graham crusade that, you know, if, you're, if you really want to be saved, I'm sorry, it's good that you asked Jesus into your heart, but you also have to become a Lutheran or a Baptist. Of course, we know you have to become Pentecostal. <laughs> Whenever this type of thing happens, and it still happens... The gospel is fundamentally compromised. The message shifts from come to Christ to join our group. Paul's response is just resoundingly clear. Neither Judaism, it applies to that, but it's not just that. Neither Judaism nor any other religious system can be added To supplement the effectiveness of Christ's work on the cross. That's the issue. We'll see it. Paul's going to deal with in this letter. What happened to my pen? I had it. There it is. He says, I do not, look at this, set aside. Isn't that interesting? There's the verbs. I don't set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, that doesn't mean just the Ten Commandments. It means the whole old covenant. If righteousness comes through the law, then look at this. Christ died for nothing. Absolutely nothing. Paul uses this term. Um, he talks about, he talks about uh, the, 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 the law. Sorry, I got ahead of my slides. This is what I meant. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. That's one important verse. Here's another one. Are you so foolish after beginning by the spirit? This is to the the Gentile Christians. Beginning by the spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Now, Paul uses flesh in different ways in his writings. Flesh can be... uh, wickedness. He'll talk in this letter about the works of the flesh and he means he means idolatry, immorality, dishonesty, pride. That's the flesh. That's not how he's using it here though. When he talks about the flesh here, are you so foolish after beginning by the spirit? Are you now finishing by the flesh? He's particularly thinking of that the sign of circumcision in the flesh of the body. And the dietary regulations, he's thinking of of religious works of pride, a, an accomplishment that tries to earn my standing with God. So, flesh isn't sinful stuff. Flesh is just self reliance. Here's here's uh, this isn't in the notes because I just did this in my office this morning. Paul writes, and he says, uh, "Here's what Paul means when he says." After beginning in the spirit, are you now going to be made complete by the flesh? In, in Philippians three, you might want to jot this down. Cause they don't have a slide for this. Paul says, but everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be loss because of Christ. The kind of stuff he's talking about is where he says, we are the circumcision the ones who worship by the spirit of God. He says, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, there's the same word. If anyone else thinks he has ground for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation, Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews regarding the law of Pharisee. Boy, they were careful about the law regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, Paul says, I was blameless. Unbelievable. But everything that was gained to me, I consider to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law. That's Philippians, but that's what Paul is trying to say to these false teachers in Galatia. Not having a righteousness of my own through the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. That's what Paul is talking about. When he says, are you so foolish after beginning by the spirit? Are you now finishing by the flesh? This is where he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. He he can't stop on this. 319. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed To whom the promise was made was come. The law was put in effect through angels by means of a mediator. Paul points out that what the Judaizers were neglecting. The entire Old Testament era. That's what he means by the law. The entire Old Covenant, not just parts of it. Was given for a limited purpose. Why do we have? Okay, here's my Bible. You got the same thing. Why why do we need all of this? That's that's what Paul's dealing with. Why do we need all this? He says it's given for two things. It was given to reveal sin. You read that whole Old Testament and God's people over and over and over again, idolatry, fall into the same sins of idolatry, immorality, they forsake God. What's wrong? What's wrong with these people? Well, because the, the, the law, it can't make anybody holy. It just reveals sin. So it was to reveal sin and it was for a limited time until Christ came, until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. That's what Paul's dealing with there. So we need To frame that context, for Paul's words, there's a a specific kind of legalism. He's protecting the very core of Christianity here. We use the word legalism in a pretty loose way. I mean, I've heard people who use verses from the book of Galatians whenever anyone tries to confront them with the need for separation from the world. I have had i have had it happen in C.W. community church in my office down the hall there i have had people say pastor don don't be so legalistic i can live with so and so even though we're not married and then they'll quote some verse from galatians how about we have the liberty of the spirit and it's just rubbish rubbish this is miles removed from the kind of legalism paul was writing about in his letter to the galatians in fact in fact in a way that we're not used to anymore paul wasn't against giving christians pretty detailed specific lists of do's and don'ts you you can find them in in his letter to the church of Corinth. You can find them in his letters to the church of Thessalonica. You You can find them in various places where he says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. If you do, don't think you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's Paul. He doesn't think of it as legalism. He thinks of it as pursuing holiness. But this is different. These are people saying, you need old covenant Judaism if Christ is going to be of benefit to you. And that Paul won't stand for for a minute. 3, I said we do a quick overview of the letter. Are you still with me? For simplicity, when we study this book, we're going to divide it up into into three sections. The first two chapters deal with the all-important issue of truth and authority in the Christian faith. That's the first two chapters, one and two. And it's significant to me that Paul lays it down at the very beginning of his letter. Because he knows he's confronting a lot of false ideas. And the question naturally would be, Paul, who, who died and made you king? Paul, how come you get to decide what we're supposed to believe and not believe? How do you get to decide which teachers we're supposed to listen to and which teachers we're not supposed to listen to? It's a pretty fair question. And so Paul takes the first two chapters and he says, I didn't get get this message of the gospel from some council at Jerusalem. I got this from God himself. And so he takes two chapters, and, and we'll look at those in detail, the issue of authority in religion. Look at, all the, look at all the religious buildings. Look at all the religions all over the world. What gives us the right to say, we got the truth? Not you, not you, not you, not you, not you. You all have to change. Why do you have to change? We have the truth. Now, to a lot of people, that sounds pretty arrogant. What gives us the right to say that? What makes us so sure? That's the issue Paul will deal with. By the way, Jesus dealt with it. Uh, Let me just... Matthew 28. Here's verses that you've known. And I did this in my office this morning. They don't have a slide, and I'm sorry. Matthew 28. If you got a Bible, look these up. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. These are words that most people, at least the gist of them, most people can quote them. But there's a question that never usually gets asked, and I want to pose it to you this morning. So Matthew 28, 18. We call this the Great Commission, right? Jesus came near and said to them, I'm reading 28, 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here's the question. Why, in the middle of all those instructions, why does Jesus start this commission the way he does? Why is it that the first thing he says is, before he says, Go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptizing them. Before he says any of that, the very first thing he says is, I need you disciples to understand all authority has been given to me. Why does he start with that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because it answers the question that all of the disciples would have had on their minds. It's a nervy thing. It's a nervy thing to take the gospel, to go into the whole world, because you know what you've got in the whole world? You've got people with all sorts of religious commitments already. Don't you? All over the place. They have their gods. They have their rules. They have their sacred books, texts. They've got regulations. They've got rules for pleasing God. They've got their belief systems all formed and they're sincerely following them. It's a nervy thing to go to someone like that and say, sorry, you you have to change. You're wrong. Who, who Who gives the church the right to do that? And I'll tell you who gives us the right. Jesus does. That's why he says, all authority has been given to me. You know what Jesus is saying? I set the terms. All over the globe, all over the globe, I set the terms. It's And Paul takes the first two chapters. I took a long time unpacking that. Paul takes the first two chapters to answer this question. The issue of authority in religion is a crucial one. This world does not mind you. This world does not mind anyone in this room or watching. doesn't mind any of you saying, I love Jesus. He's the Lord of my life. And I love him with all my heart. He's redeemed me. You can say that anywhere you want. You're fine. I'll tell you the offense, what the, what the New Testament calls the offense of the gospel is when you come to people and say... I love Jesus with all my heart. He's changed my life. He's redeemed me. He's Lord of my life. By the way, you must accept Christ too. Now you've crossed a line. Right? Now you've crossed a line. That's the issue. The huge issue of Galatians 1 and 2 and, and the words of Jesus. Okay, I said we're going to divide our study into three sections. The first is authority. First two chapters. B. The second two chapters deal with the nature of salvation. Now that too is a subject of great relevance. How are people made right with God? These false teachers were coming and saying, well, you've you've got the old covenant and the terms. We got the old covenant from God and they did, right? They got it from God. And the terms are there for holiness and pleasing God. And so they were saying to these Christians that that's how you please God. So how are people made right with God? What kind of role do good deeds play in getting to heaven? Here's the question. Do I have to be holy to get to heaven? How many say yes, Pastor Don? You have to be holy if you want to go to heaven. One, two, three four. Okay. How many think you don't have to be holy and you can still go to heaven? I got nine people involved in both questions, which I think shows we need to study this letter, don't we? We need to study this letter. What is the role of good deeds? Do we have to be holy? And if And if we must be holy, then what happens to salvation by grace through faith alone? And it's in the middle two chapters of the letter that Paul gets down to these issues. Where Paul explains the purpose of the Mosaic law, the Old Testament sacrifices, the nature of saving faith. Christians need a clear understanding of that. The last two chapters of the book, there are six chapters... Three sections. The last two chapters deal with uh, the important subject of Christian holiness. Once one is saved, how does one grow in holiness? If works don't save, then how come they're so important after we're saved? I think that's a relevant question. What is the relationship that the Christian has today to the Ten Commandments? Let's do it again. How many think a Christian has to keep the Ten Commandments? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Good, I'm getting some converts. Twelve, thirteen. How many think Christians don't have to keep the Ten Commandments? Let me see your hand. One, two, three. Three, four, five, six. Okay, the yes is when we do have to keep the Ten Commandments. It's an important question. These last two chapters are some of the trickiest chapters in the book. But there's some of Paul's, oh my goodness, if if you wait on the word like we sang... They are some of Paul's finest words on cultivating the life of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of righteousness in our hearts. His ultimate conclusion, by the way, let me just tell you in advance. It, his ultimate conclusion is so needed. It's so needed in the church today. The life of the Spirit brings freedom, but it's freedom from sin, not freedom to sin and those two final chapters explain how to make this process a living reality in our hearts i recognize i knew when i set this up but that's not a typical sunday morning sermon what i all i wanted to do today i wanted you to see galatians deals with some pretty important issues some pretty important issues that, that it's not enough that we just have general thoughts about. We ought to be able to explain to people, this is how this works. This is how it works for everyone. This is how it works all the time. And this is how we know this is true. So I hope here, watching South Sanctuary Fellowship Hall, I'm hoping everybody's going to know the book of Galatians, inside out, backwards and forwards. By the time we're done this study in, in six years' time, that you're going to feel you've got this all down pat. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that Christianity is different from the world's mystic religions. We don't trance out when we come to church. We engage. We want to wait on the Lord by waiting on his word. Worship The worship time doesn't end when the worship team sits down. The worship time deepens as we open our Bibles. That you come and renew our hearts and renew our minds. And and we do want to say all over again, we love you, Jesus, with all our hearts. And we magnify the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name I pray and I thank you. Amen. Amen.